So let's join in prayer and we'll get started back in again. If you'll join me, please. Lord God, we thank you again for the privilege it is to study your word together, to learn more and more about you and how perfectly you created man, you called him, you use him. Help us not to forget that you've called us in this generation. It's our time, just like it was Moses's and Esther's and all those that we read about in the word of God. It's our time now to represent you. And we pray that being here today will cause us to do that more readily and with a lot more love for you, knowing how wonderful you are. We just ask you to continue with Catherine and be with her as she continues to teach us that we might follow you more in Jesus' name. We um, are going to look now at three chapters. Three chapters. This lesson is number 17 in our Christ in Exodus study, and it is entitled The Civil Law, an Overview. A quick overview, I should say. You know, the law is not real exciting. (laughs) Of course, I'm not a lawyer. Um, But uh, I just decided let's move on and not, we're not under the law. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in a lot of this little stuff here. But we'll give an overview to um, the civil law. We discussed the moral law in the Ten Commandments, now we move on to the civil law. And I'm not going to read all three chapters because then this would not be a short lesson. The moral laws of God were abbreviated, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And they showed the Israelites, and really all mankind, their bondage to sin. Because it's impossible to keep all the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Just think about the one about coveting. But they were designed to guide Israel to the ceremonial laws surrounding the tabernacle, which we'll be getting to, I think, maybe even next next time, um, where forgiveness of sin through faith in the substitutionary sacrifices was provided in anticipation of Christ who would be the once-for-all sin substitutionary sacrifice for sin. All of those animal sacrifices were merely in anticipation of Christ. You got that, right? And they only temporarily covered sin so that people could be forgiven until they were fully cleansed by the shed blood and death of Christ. Now, the law cannot do a lot of things. The law cannot justify. In other words, it cannot save. The law cannot give life. The law cannot give the Holy Spirit. The law cannot sanctify. It cannot make someone perfect. It cannot permanently deal with sin. It essentially was God's temporary guardian to watch over his people until Christ came. And he could do all those things. He could save, make perfect. He could give life, the Holy Spirit, and uh, permanently deal with sin. Those who attempt to use the law, and we have this exemplified by the scribes and the Pharisees. They really did try to use the law to establish their own righteous standards before God. Didn't they? They they tried to, well, they, of course, they reinterpreted the laws 
and they misinterpreted the laws. That's why Jesus came along and he always would say, you know, you have heard it said by the scribes and the Pharisees, such and such, but I say unto you, here's the right interpretation of those laws. They thought if they could just uh, bring down the standard of God and that they could do things externally, then they could fulfill the law. They could obey the law. Uh, they didn't understand anything about the heart, did they? And um, anyway, uh, th- those who try to do that do not understand at all God's holiness. There are a lot of people in this world who do not. I don't fully understand God's holiness. Do you? But people have brought God down so much, you know, as a casual God. They do not have any appreciation for his holy, holy, holiness. They don't understand that to even break one part of the law is the, it results in the same penalty as if you broke the whole law. And that penalty, the wages of sin, is what? Death. So to even covet for one second is to break one part of the law and you've broken the whole thing, you deserve death. People who try, you know, legalists, try to go by the law and think that they can um, fulfill it and have their own righteousness, they don't have any understanding at all that, of the fact that there is no righteousness in us whatsoever. All of our supposed righteousness is as, what does God say? As filthy rags. Sadly, they also fail to comprehend that the law only brings a curse and death and condemnation. Because man in his sinful state cannot fulfill the righteousness of the letter of the law, much less the spirit of the law. You know, they thought, well, I won't commit adultery. I'll never do that. But what about the spirit of the law? If you even look upon a woman to lust after her, Jesus says you've committed adultery. That's the spirit of the law. Man always falls short, and he always therefore stands guilty before holy God. But, but, wondrously, God intervened to pull man out of his hopeless, helpless sin condition. It says in Romans 8, 3, and 4, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what the law couldn't do, God in his son did do. Yay. (laughs) That's something to really praise him for every single morning you wake up. Now, where do we find the law? Well, the Old Testament law is spread out. Uh, We find it in the last half of Exodus. It's also spread out in the books of Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the law takes up a good portion of the Pentateuch. In addition to the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law consists of 613 commandments. I have trouble remembering the Ten. How would you like to have to remember 613? Now, there's one negative for every day of the year because there's 365 do-nots. Do not, do not, do not, do not. But you can't do any of the do-nots on any one day. I mean, you can't do a do-not just one day out of the year. You have to do all 365 do-nots every single day of the 365 days of the year. Did you follow that? I don't even know what I said. But in addition to doing the 365 do-nots every day of the year, you also have to do the 248 do's. (laughs) The positive laws. 
Well, no wonder nobody can keep it, right? Unfortunately, the Jews gradually confused keeping the law, of course, their interpretation of the law, they confused keeping the law with salvation. And so by the time Jesus came along, law and tradition had become the basis for salvation in the minds of most of the Jewish people because that's basically what they were taught from their rulers, their leaders, their spiritual false shepherds. Likewise, do we not find that much of Christendom has gotten bogged down with uh, traditions and rituals and ceremonies and rules and regulations failing to see that Christianity is not about good works. It's not about church membership. What church do you belong to? I always say I'm a biblicist. You know, when I say, what denomination are you? I'm a biblicist. Um, uh, it's not about um, taking the mass. It's not about transubstantiation. It's not about baptism. Right? None of those things. Christianity is having a personal relationship with the living God through his son, which is entirely made possible by faith in his atoning work for us on the cross. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's it. Simple. I'm so glad it's that way. So glad. There are several very clear scriptures, passage, scripture passages to establish that Christ brought an end to the Mosaic law. Um, by the way, that was from the Sermon on the Mount, wasn't it? Remember in Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case see the kingdom of heaven. They thought they were so righteous, but they had no righteousness. Your righteousness has to exceed theirs because it has to be the righteousness of Christ in you, the righteousness he imputes to us. Anyway, that's what that slide was about. Um, what was I saying? Okay, Christ brought an end to the law. Now, I can say that definitively, absolutely, because the scripture says this. This is in Romans 10, 4, and this is just one place, but it says it really clearly. Christ is the end of the law. How's that? I don't know how you can interpret that any other way. <laughs> Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this was also settled by the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Looking into the issue of the law, the early church leaders convened in Jerusalem to discuss um, uh, the law, the issue of the law. And in that council, you know, like are we still supposed to be under the law or not? In that council, they rejected, completely unanimously rejected the concept of putting New Testament believers back under the yoke of the law. Do you think the law is a heavy yoke to bear? That's why Jesus came along and said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're out free from under the law. But some were attempting to do this. They were attempting to put people that got saved, that put their faith in Jesus, these Judaizers, they were called, were trying to put people back under the law. Okay, you're saved, but you still have to have your children circumcised, especially Gentiles. They were saying, you have to obey all the dietary laws, you have to circumcise, etc., etc. So that's why the council got together to see if this is true or not. And they unanimously said, no, we're free from the law. 
The only thing they asked of Gentile believers was that they would please control their liberties. You see, in Christ, we're set free. We have Christian liberties, don't we? But they said, would you please control your liberties so that you do not offend your Jewish brothers? For example, don't go around eating bacon in front of them. (laughs) Or, you know, just flaunting your liberty so that you're, and, and that's still true for us today. I'm free to do all kinds of things, but I will not do them. Not that because I, I just don't want a weaker brother to stumble. So that's what they asked. They didn't seek to place any believer under the law's yoke because they understood it had come to an end. Christ didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. And when he fulfilled it, it was no longer necessary. Also, the book of Hebrews demonstrates that the Mosaic law was only temporary. It has been replaced by Christ, whose ministry is based on a better priesthood, for example. You know, Hebrews talks about all these things that are better with Christ. A better priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood. We have one after in Christ, one after the order of who? Melchizedek, which is a higher, superior to the Aaronic priesthood. And in Christ, we have a better covenant than the Mosaic Covenant, because we have um, better promises. Hebrews 7.10. The New Covenant is better than the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was just a shadow of of heavenly things to come. If, If the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was able to make man righteous before holy God, guess what? there would be no need for the second covenant, for the new covenant, would there? If the old covenant could make a person righteous before holy God, why have another covenant? Why have a new covenant? But it wasn't. So today, we are not under the Mosaic law. Amen. (laughs) But many of its righteous principles, called the eternal laws of God, have been carried over and are part of the law Uh, of the spirit of life in Christ, which is also called the law of Christ. Now, in this, some of the former commandments are carried over. For example, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. You know, there's there's still eternal laws that were in effect before Sinai and that are as eternal and unchanging as God himself. We know these, you know, it's just innately put in us. It's wrong to steal and and, and lie and bear false witness. So some are carried over. Some new commands and guidelines are added in the New Testament. And some have been revised, such as capital punishment. The end of the law does not cancel or detract one single bit from these eternal laws of God. They have not ended. As noted in our lesson on the Ten Commandments, they continue just as they did before Sinai. They're as eternal as God himself. And the Apostle Paul referred to the moral principles embodied in the Mosaic Law as the righteousness of the law. Let's see which one I'm on now. That one. The righteousness of the law. He explained, Paul did, that such principles are the goal of the spirit-filled life. And he did this in the same context in which he said that believers are no longer under the Mosaic law. We're not under the law, but do we still fulfill the law? 
And spirit-filled Christians, we want to fulfill the law. I mean, not the 613 little things about every, you know, (laughs) jot and tittle, tooth and everything. Talks about teeth and eyes, you know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, we don't have to obey all that. But the moral laws and the the basic, basic big ones, we do. We want to obey them um, because we love the one who saved us so much. What he did for us, we want to obey him. And those laws are written now where? In, in hearts of flesh. We don't need them engraved on stone tablets. They're in our hearts. For a New Testament believer to return to the law as a way of life. And do you know people who won't do anything on, like on Sunday? Won't do anything? I mean, there are people that won't do a thing. They won't even... They set their um, a lot of their little system so that the lights flick on themselves, <laughs> and they don't have to flick the switch because that might be work for the light to come. I'm talking about some of the Amish and different, but there's people I know people who won't uh, go to a restaurant on Sunday and all kinds of things like that. But and that's you know I'm not I'm not judging them. I, in a way, that's probably good. Uh, but anyway, for a New Testament believer to return to the law as a way of life, legalism, and that, that just puts him back under the control of the flesh and not the spirit. But being free from the law doesn't mean we're lawless. I hope you're not lawless. Is that called antinomianism or something like that? You know, people will say, well, I'm under grace, so I can do anything, absolutely anything. No, 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 no. We're not lawless. It doesn't mean that there's no morality or ethics in the Christian life. Absolutely the opposite is true. The morality of the Christian life is the result of the exchange life by faith and submission to the spirit. The eternal laws of God written on our hearts of flesh are, are, you know, we want to obey, as I just said. I put that, I thought, isn't that a pretty picture? Put that up, you know, from Valentine's Day. Um, So the Israelites, you know, think about the Israelites. They had been governed by the laws of Egypt for centuries, but as slaves. So they had absolutely no rights at all. They had to obey the laws, but they had no rights. They were slaves. And now that they're free, they are faced with, and they're only 50 days out from Egypt. Remember that. So now they're faced with problems that accompany independence. And self-governance. If Israel was to become a nation in her own right, she needed laws that would educate, civilize, organize her people civilly, morally, religiously, so that she would be set apart from the other nations whose foundation was not built on the law of Almighty God. So the... um, Mosaic law was an elaborate system of legislation. In its complexity, it just about literally provided for every potential situation that you could think of that could arise between God and man, between man and man, between man and woman, between parents and children, and even between man and animals. And that's why we're not going to get into all of it, but there's every little situation you can think of. What do you do in this situation? And so it's spelled out. Uh, Chapter 20 of Exodus presented us with the moral standard, you know, the Ten Commandments called the Constitution, 
by which Israel's national life was to be regulated. And now in the next three chapters, 21, 22, 23, we have examples or case laws of how to apply the moral standards of the Ten Commandments to situations that commonly arose in the ancient lives of the Israelites. And this section of the law is, was for Israel only, only Israel. But the principles behind them would really do any nation good if applied to their own law codes. And in its complexity, as I said, they provide, these case laws provide for every potential situation that you can think of. Um, and they show us in that, they show us God's personal interest in every area of his people's lives, even down to teeth. Teeth, you know, like a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. So he, he knows how many hairs on our head, right? At any given moment, he even cares about your teeth. We had a woman yesterday who told me right before the Bible study, she was embarrassed to smile at me because she had just lost one of her front teeth. And I said, well, God cares about that tooth. <laughs> and he does. I said, did you put it under her, your pillow? And she said, no, I swallowed it. <laughs> My grandchildren get so upset when they swallow their teeth because then they don't have anything to put under the pillow. Oh, and grandma's very generous, a very generous tooth fairy. Well, God gave case laws about specific, uh, very specific things. For example, this starts out off here, uh, let's see, 20, what are we in, 21? Starts off with the rights of servants. And actually, the Hebrew word is not slaves. If your Bible says slaves, it's actually talking about servants. Servants and their rights. Nobody ever cared about the rights of servants before God, but he does. It also talks about murder and non-lethal violence, and about personal injury. It gives case laws about harm that would be done to a pregnant woman. Nobody ever cared about women, much less pregnant women. He also included case laws about restitution, which is the return of property to uh, its rightful owner. And he talked about um, property damage. What, what happens if you damage somebody else's property? Or if you steal somebody else's property? How is that addressed? He talks about even things like sorcery and um, sexual perversions, even discussing something like bestiality and idolatry and false religious practices. What do you do with somebody engaged in those things? He gave laws to protect foreigners and widows and orphans from mistreatment and even from starvation. And again, the ancient people weren't known for um, trying to protect widows and orphans and the poor and the strangers, you know, the aliens to your land. He also included a case law against committing usury with the poor. Usury was the practice of lending money at a high interest and they would take advantage of poor by lending them money and then charging a really high interest rate. He prohibited his people from speaking ill of their judges and their rulers. Oh, that would be interesting. It says gods, if you look at verse 28, 
chapter 22, 28. I don't know where I am here. 22, 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods. That's actually the word for judges. The judges, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Huh, huh, huh. Hmm. Hmm. Um, he told Israel that the first crops, first fruit of crops and other sources of income belong to him, as do firstborn sons. Uh, they are to be dedicated to him. And firstborn, even firstborn of cattle were to be dedicated to him. Talks about how justice is not to be perverted by false testimony or by mob rule, you know. Um, the majority is not always right. And to follow the mobs is not always the right thing to do, is it? Actually, the narrow road is very narrow. <laughs> Most people are on the broad. So don't always follow what everybody else is doing, unless they're godly. Uh, he talks about uh, justice is not to be partial. It's not to be partial toward the poor, nor partial toward the rich. All this is given in these chapters. He even gave specifics about doing what is right in the case of finding an enemy's animal gone astray or in distress. All right? So you're walking along the highway and you see your worst enemy's cow in distress. It's fallen into a pit. What do you do? Walk right by? Think of the Samaritan <laughs> guy on the road to Samaritan. How the Levite and the priest walk right by. But he gives specific. What are you supposed to do in a case? If you see your neighbor's cow going off where it's going to get hurt. You are supposed to go and get it. Yes. Even if you hate the guy, go get his cow and take it back to him. Right. That's in Hebrews 20. I mean, Hebrews. Um, Exodus 23, 6, 1 through 6, talks about all those things. And I'm not going to, I mean, it's got, it talks about the lex talionis. Anybody know what that means? Latin for like for like. Yeah. It is uh, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, how to, it, it's uh, talking about punishment should match the crime. But I'm not going to talk about all those things. I will have more information in your email lesson. But there is one little case law I would like to highlight, and that's the Lord's command. I forgot. Here we go. Uh, to allow the poor to be, um, to be able to harvest or glean the leftover grain and crops in fields. This practice of gleaning is so wise that I just think it's, it's wonderful. It, it really is a good, was a good law. Um, it wasn't a handout, you see. It wasn't like a welfare program because it, it was an opportunity for the poor to actually work and support themselves. And there's um, a certain amount of self-esteem in being able to do that. You know, it's good for people to work if they can. I'm talking about if they can. And so what this law was is that landowners were required to leave each of their fields or their vineyards or their orchards unplanted one year out of every seven. This is the Sabbath law, which we'll talk about next. So that the poor or the, the alien, you know, the strangers or the widows or anyone who couldn't, didn't have a livelihood 
could harvest anything that would grow there during that year on its own. So if you leave a field or an orchard or a vineyard unharvested for a year, you're still going to have stuff that comes up, aren't you? And so the poor were allowed to go in that Sabbath year and, um, and, and, and uh, get food for themselves. Even in the active fields during the other six years and the active vineyards and orchards, owners, when they went to harvest, they were not to harvest everything. They were not to strip the fields bare or the vineyards. You know, they were to purposely leave some grain, leave some grapes, etc., for the poor to come and collect. An olive grove or a grape vineyard was also only to be harvested one time a year. So again, the poor could come along and feed themselves. Uh, This is not only an expression of kindness, but it was a matter of justice. And it was because of this case law regarding gleaning that a certain woman met a certain man, and you all were thinking of that already, weren't you? Who met who? Ruth. Ruth met Boaz. Because Ruth was not only a foreigner, she was a Moabite, but she was a widow. And uh, she was poor. And Naomi was too old to go out and do that, but she, Ruth, was able to go out and glean Boaz's field. And, of course, he saw her and liked her and... And therefore, she became the great-grandmother of King David and is in the genealogical record of who? The Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. And it all really goes back to this gleaning law, which I really like. I like that law. Well, Exodus 23, verses 10 to 13, contains the Sabbath principle. And it's about more than just the seven-day week. You know, where you work six days and the seventh day you rest. This is also about Sabbath years where the land was to lay fallow. It was to rest one out of every seven years. So you'd, you know, you'd work, you'd work your fields and your orchards and every six years. And then the seventh year, you just let it rest. Now, <laughs> Israel obeyed this law for a while, but then she got kind of greedy and wanted to keep, you know, having crops. So for 490 years, Israel did not obey this Sabbath law that we find here in these chapters. 490 years. Now, if you divide that by seven, because you see, during those 490 years, every seventh year, she was supposed to let the land rest, but she didn't. So what's 490 divided by seven? 70. And since she had not obeyed it, God took her out of the land for 70 years, took her to Babylon so that the land could get the rest that it was supposed to get. And I didn't just make that up. It actually states it in the Bible that this is the reason he took her captive. That and plus she was worshiping idols. But that's the reason for how many years she was captive, was 70. Now the Sabbath rest was for all people, even for the servants. It was for all people, and it was even for all animals. The ox got a break, you know, every seventh year. Um, likewise, the Sabbath rest, which is fulfilled in Christ, he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath rest. In him we find our rest, right? Um, and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Likewise, the Sabbath is for all. Uh, Christ is for all people. 
and even for all creation. The creation currently groans and is waiting for its redemption in Jesus Christ. Also, the Lord made it clear that the Sabbath day was to be dedicated to him and not to some other God who are not gods. That's in chapter something or other, verse 13. (laughs) I don't know which chapter. And then we have in 23, verses 14 to 17, those three national feasts that we've talked about before called the pilgrim feasts. These were the three out of the seven God-given feasts in which all Jewish males, physically able Jewish males, were to come together to celebrate them. And they were the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks which is also called the Feast of Ingathering or Shavuot or Pentecost. So those three feasts, they were to gather to celebrate. And details about how Israel was to celebrate these feasts and the other four are found later on in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23 is an important chapter in the scripture because it gives us God's seven feast days which are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we have talked about that before, haven't we? The spring feasts and the fall feasts and and everything about them. All right, God also included case laws regarding sacrifices and offerings. One strict rule was that no blood sacrifice could be offered with leavened bread. Why would that be? What is leaven a symbol of? Sin. Uh, And Christ, who is pictured by all of the offerings, by the way, every single offering is a picture of Christ, the burnt offering in one way or another. And uh, we could do a study on that. It's very fascinating. But the peace offering, all the different offerings picture Christ and his atonement work in one way or the other. There's all kinds of different aspects of his uh, atonement work. But because he is pictured by the um, sacrifice, it could not have leaven in it. Because his sacrifice, he is sinless, without leaven. Another rule was that the fat of sacrifices offered to God, like you had a really fat lamb, (laughs) that fat was not to remain until the next day, the next morning. It had to be all burnt at the same time. You see, since atonement was to be regarded as the complete work of Christ, you know, picturing his complete, completed work on the cross, it must be wholly offered to the Lord. Nothing left over for the next day. He finished it once for all. All right, and there's other things, um, really some strange things about thou shall not see the kid in his mother's milk. That's interesting, but I'm not going to go there. You can ask Carol Barstow about that one. All right. Finally, the Lord promised a unique angel, a unique angel to keep Israel in the way. Remember, she's in her wilderness journey to keep her in the way until finally bringing her into the promised land. That's in 2320. This angel was to be obeyed. Let me read it. Let's get over here and read it because this is. All right, 2320. Behold, I send an angel. Do you notice the angel is capitalized? It is in my Bible. I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. 
Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions. Oh, this angel has the power to forgive sins. For my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Microbites and the Mosquitobites, is what I meant to say. (laughs) And I will cut them off. And on and on he goes. Okay, so he promises this unique angel. This angel was to be obeyed and not provoked because he held the right of judgment over the nation. Hmm. And he even had the right to pardon sin. So who is this angel with a capital A? Absolutely. This is not some ordinary angel. This isn't even an archangel. You know, Michael uh, or Gabriel, neither one of them ever had uh, the right of judgment over sin you know, to pardon someone. Um, Michael never presumed to sit in judgment on anyone. This was none other than the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. The name of God is in him. The name Yahweh is in Jesus because Jesus is Yahshua, and in that name is Yahweh. The pre-incarnate Christ was with Israel already during her wilderness journey. Up to this point, he's been with her every step of the way. This is just a promise. He'll continue to be with you. He was with her in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And God here promises that he will bring Israel to her place, to the place he has prepared for her. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. He will bring her into that land. Isn't the same true for us? Same promise. Not only does the Lord Jesus prepare a place, he is now, the carpenter from Nazareth is now preparing a place for each of us in his father's house, isn't he? For each of us. I can't wait to see mine. I like a lot of color, Lord. Bright, bright colors. Uh, (laughs) But um, he not only prepares a place, is preparing a place for each of us now, but he is preparing where we walk today. The steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord. He, he's prepared your way. You know, where's the lady that just came from California? He prepared your way to come here. <laughs> Much as you might not like the weather compared to San Diego. Um, uh, and he's preparing the place where we'll walk tomorrow. Israel has promised God's blessing if she will obey the voice of this angel. It was, you know, a characteristic of the Mosaic law covenant that uh, blessing was based on Israel's obedience the mosaic law was a conditional law it was based on obedience if israel would obey what she would be blessed if she disobeyed she would be cursed Uh, thankfully under the new covenant there's a different operating principle because i would live a life cursed (laughs) although there are always consequences of course to disobedience yet we are always blessed in the lord jesus and it is certainly not because we have been always obedient but it is because he was obedient for us so god didn't bring israel out of egypt just to leave her there in the wilderness He was going to bring her into the promised land that uh, 
the land he had promised to Abraham and to his descendants, the land of, of abundance. Now, there were, however, mighty tribes living in that land. What was that land called? Canaan. There were mighty, powerful tribes there. As I said, you know, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parasites. <laughs> I always have fun with those words. Um, and they were there. Uh, and he promises, God promises here that his angel, his angel, the Lord Jesus Christ, would bring obedient Israel into that land. Now, disobedient Israel would die off, but he would bring obedient Israel into that land. And he would, ahead of time, send fear into the hearts of all her enemies, all those ites. And he would drive them out, what? Little by little. That's why I've got that inchworm there. Little by little. That's 23 verse 30, I think. Now, it probably frustrated Israel that God operated slowly in clearing out all her enemies over the years. It took a long time to get rid of all those ites. But if he had, and he says this in verse 29, if he had driven them all out at once, the land would have become desolate and the beasts would have taken over. They would have overpopulated before Israel was ready to completely take over. And also God, his, his ultimate goal is to mature Israel, to make her Christ-like, like with us. He wants to make us like his son. So he wanted to mature her as she slowly took over the land. He knows that maturity takes time, doesn't it? Don't you wish you could snap your fingers and it would be, you would be totally mature? <laughs> no, it's a little by little process. Uh, and that's why he works in us, little by little. The, the deeper meaning of all of this is the conquest of sin. The work of sanctification is gradual. We're not given rapid victory over the sin inhabitants of our hearts. It's only little by little that they are driven out. And do you notice who it is that drives them out? It's not really us. It's God using trials and circumstances, etc. He says, I will drive them out. You see, sanctification is one of his works. It's of him. It takes omnipotent God to help us conquer the sins of our lives, which are symbolized by all these Hivites, etc. This was a guarantee of Israel's future victory in the promised land. He is saying, I will bring you in. You won't wander around. Now, they don't know. They've got 40 years of wandering yet. <laughs> but he does promise that you will get in there one of these days, at least your descendants will. Um, so it's not only a guarantee of that, but it's also a guarantee of the follow-up victory uh, once she did enter the promised land, even though that follow-up victory would be progressive. It would be little by little. So the first, going into the land, is a picture of justification. The second, the little by little getting rid of the enemies is a picture of sanctification, if you're following me. All right, now the boundaries, and we'll close with this. See, short lesson. 
the boundaries of Israel's inheritance. He, do you know what verse that is? I forgot to write it down again. What? 2331. Yep, there they are. 2331. They're still in that place. The same verse they were yesterday. Uh, he's, he gives the boundaries of Israel's inheritance. And that, those boundaries, look at that. Does she own anything like that today? That's a big chunk. I mean, it includes a lot of, well, almost all of Syria and a lot of Iraq and Saudi Arabia, my, and Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula, Jordan, Lebanon. Whoo, she doesn't own that today, but he promised her this. He said it was going to be from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, from the wilderness of Shur to the Euphrates River. That she has not. Now, she only came close, a little bit close to that under the days of King Solomon, but she has not yet fully possessed that much land. She will. That land will not go to the Palestinians. It will go to Israel because God keeps his promises. Any little things about that going on today about dividing Israel even further, making two states, that is not in accordance with the will of God. You should understand the Bible so you can understand some politics. Anyway, she hasn't fully possessed it, but will she? Yes, she will. One day when Christ returns and she accepts him at his second coming and repents for having pierced him. And just like Joseph's brothers, she bows before him and all Israel is saved and they go into the millennial kingdom. She will possess this land because when God says it, he means it. Amen. All right. Father, thank you for our time together. Go with each woman. Please put a hedge of protection around her and her family. Keep her from the evil one. Keep her from the coronavirus and all the other mess that's going on in this world. Help us all to be salt and light until we return again on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, help us to remember what we've learned here today and share it with others. Thank you for being the eternal God, our Lord and Savior, our Deliverer. And that we're not under the law anymore, but the law is written in our hearts. And we want to obey you. We long to obey you. We know we don't want to be as naive as the Israelites and say we will obey you. But may that be the desire and longing of our hearts is to always obey you and to please you. For you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory and dominion and power and everything. Because you are all in all. Now I ask that, uh, that you just be our constant guide as you promised, through the walk of tomorrow until we meet again. For we ask these things in the blessed, precious name of Yahshua, our Savior. Amen. Amen. God bless you.